Well, good morning once again. Um, last Sunday, we began a three-part series entitled Heresy, <laughs> right? Heresy. Wow, what a great thing to talk about. How fun. Um, <laughs> what did we do as we began our series last week? Well, we defined what heresy is. We talked about its origin, where it comes from, the devil, obviously. And um, we also talked about how to properly deal with a heretic, one who has, um, who claims to be a Christian but, you know, also adheres to false doctrine and preaches false doctrine. How, how do we deal with them? We saw it in Titus 3.10, you know, you address them on the issue. If they don't repent, you address them again. If they don't repent, then you have to remove them from the congregation. You have to remove them from the church. It's really kind of a sad thing, but it's so necessary because God wants His church to be holy. He wants His church to be doctrinally pure. He wants unity in the church. And if you have different factions in the church that are saying and preaching different things, you you just can't have unity, and the church can't stay on mission the way that it is and glorify God. And so that's kind of where we began. Um, This morning, we're going to talk about past and present heresies. What I'll do is I'll identify some ancient heresy and then uh, talk about it in, in some detail, I suppose. Not a whole lot, because how much, you know, you need a lot of time. You could literally spend a sermon on every one of these easily. You could do a series on each one of these heresies. But what I'll do is I'll identify it and kind of define it, talk about its origin and who started it and what it is and what it teaches. And then we'll parallel it with a, today's version of it. And just right out of the gate, you need to know that, you know, the devil is really, really good and very, very talented at repackaging old lies and old heresies. And so you have something, you know, that, that came around in the first century and, and we would think that it's gone now and, you know, the church dealt with it decisively and it's gone, but the devil is, is way too crafty and he always figures out ways to repackage and remarket these things. And unfortunately, those in the church tend to grab onto these things and run with them. So talk about the old stuff and then bring it into our context. I'm going to try to tackle six of them today, um, which is, for somebody like me, the way that I preach, if you've been here for any length of time, that's going to be a miracle to cover all of them. Um, And then I want to cover probably another six next week, and I would say make it a point to be here, obviously, next week so you can hear how we wrap it up. Uh, So we're going to begin with a word of prayer, and then I'll just shoot right out of the gate, and we'll start bringing them out. Father, um, we tend to think of heretics as not us. (laughs) They're those guys over there. And uh, I think if we were to honestly and and very transparently evaluate what we believe and compare it to church orthodoxy, we would find that that there are points of heresy in every one of our theologies. And... um, and so, God, I pray that this wouldn't be just a us-and-them kind of message, an us-and-them kind of deal in this series, that, that you would expose what has been and what exists today, and that you would also expose our own hearts if there be any heresy, any apostasy, any false doctrine, or any of those things in us, that you would you know, not just educate us on these matters, but convict us and sanctify us and change us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So speak to us, and I pray, Lord, that you would give me... Um, a gentle heart and compassionate heart and one that, because I tend to take these things, Lord, and just get crazy with them and, and try to bludgeon people, and, and I don't want to do that. I, I would need to bludgeon myself because I, 
am prone to wander and, and prone to heresy. And so just help me and help us and be with us and be glorified here in this place. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys ready? I hope you're ready to take some notes. You're probably going to want to write down at least the heresies and then maybe jot down a few notes on each one. The first one that we're going to look at is the Judaizers or Judaizing. Um, That's a first century heresy. Obviously, it's moved along into the current day, but that pretty much came about in the first century. I'd say it's kind of always been there. All these heresies have always been there since the fall of man, but you know they became more prevalent and noticeable at certain points in certain history and times. And so this is really a first century um, heresy. During the time of Paul, the apostle that is, there arose within the church a dangerous group of heretics called the Judaizers, or Ju- Judaizers, if you will, The word Judaizer comes from a Greek verb meaning to live according or in accordance to Jewish customs. Um, The word appears in Galatians 2.14 where Paul describes how he confronted the apostle Peter who somehow got off track and what he was trying to do is force Gentile converts, Gentile believers who aren't circumcised and who do not adhere to the Mosaic law. He was trying to basically move them into adhering to the Mosaic law and circumcision and those sorts of things. Peter just got off track. He was influenced by these Judaizers. And so in Galatians 2.14, we actually see, I think we see it in certain translations, the word Judaiz. And that's what Peter was trying to do. He was rebuked and he repented, which is a big, huge praise of the Lord. The doctrine of the Judaizers was a mixture of grace, which would be through Christ, and works, which would be through the keeping of the law. And so their gospel was a sort of, yes, you must believe in Jesus, but yes, you also must do X, Y, and Z. That would be the simplest way to to define the version of the gospel they taught. Obviously, it was false. Uh, They taught that in order for a person to be truly right with God, he must first conform to the Mosaic law. Um, so, you know, if you want to be a Christian, yeah, 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 you believe in Jesus, obviously. Yeah, getting baptized is a good idea. But really, before you can take that real leap and step into the faith and be welcomed into the fellowship and all that, you need to adhere to the Mosaic Law, Ten Commandments, the ceremonial things, all of that stuff. You really, in a way, need to become Jewish. That's what they taught. Um, we would say that they, the Judaizers wanted you to convert to Judaism Um, before, really, you could become a Christian. And that also included circumcision, which was a ritual. You know, if you're going to be a true Christian, you have to be circumcised. I don't know when Americans picked up the idea and notion of circumcision years and years ago, decades ago. I don't know, maybe it was over 100 years ago, but, you know, this is a supposedly a Protestant nation, and so we have it ingrained in us that, you know, the first thing you do after you have a son born to you as you have them circumcised, and it's this whole, you know, it, it's tied basically to this ritual. I'm not saying circumcision isn't a good idea, but, you know, it, it, we, we do that here in America. It's like, oh, the first thing I got to do is get them circumcised. Well, why is that? Why do you have to get them circumcised? And I think a lot of this Judaizing and Mosaic law has bled over even into our own culture, so we think it's necessary. And I'm sure there's some in our culture that think that, you know, once your child is circumcised, they're like officially a Protestant and they're good to go. At least there's a ton of them that believe that baptism is that thing that does that for them. 
And so circumcision was a huge part of what they preached. And, and obviously the ceremonial and dietary laws, you know, stay away from lobster. That's going to be really tough for me. I like shellfish. Uh, stay away from shrimp and scampi and, and calamari, which can be really good if it's done right. It's like eating a rubber band if it's done wrong. Anyone like calamari? Pretty good. Now, Bruce, Bruce, you're like the all-American. You're a burger guy, you know. He's, he's like burgers and hot dogs. That's what he knows. He's going to have a hot dog right on his, you know, his tombstone right under there. Bruce the hot dog. And uh, so, you know, you have to become this. You have, to, you have to become Jewish. You have to follow these ceremonial, these dietary things, all these restrictions. You know, when you start to do that, that's when you will actually be a true Christian. Now, this heresy was dealt with very decisively in Acts chapter 15, where we saw like the first ecumenical council meeting of the church. It was like the first official meeting where the church came together and gathered all of its leadership and, and talked about this subject of Judaizing and the gospel plus other things. And they made a judgment and wrote a letter, and the letter said, you know, Gentiles, you don't have to be circumcised, you just need to believe in Jesus, basically, and it's a good idea to stay away from some of these other things so you don't cause your Jewish brothers to stumble. And so that the church actually dealt with this Judaizing sort of thing um, at that Jerusalem council. They made a decisive decision and, and kind of locked it down. I remember when we studied that, how Paul made that case that, you know, like in Christ, there was no distinction between Jew or Gentile, for God had purified the hearts of Gentiles by faith, Acts 15, 8 through 9. You know, that's the argument he made. You know, we're all saved by the same Savior and through faith, through grace alone, and that's it. And so that was the argument he presented. Over in Galatians 2.16, he said, A man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. These are the sorts of arguments that Paul made against those who proclaimed a Jesus plus something kind of gospel. Um, and as we know, that council agreed unanimously to move in the right direction. Now, we would think that, and we would say to ourselves very quickly, oh, I, I don't. You know, I, I am Jesus alone. I am faith alone. But that's not actually the way that American evangelicals look at the gospel. At least the high majority of them do not. So this Judaizing idea of Jesus plus something is very, very prevalent. We tend to think that it's only in certain little, you know, pseudo-Christian groups, but that's not true. If you survey most Christians, they'll tell you, well, yeah, it, you know, Jesus saves me, but I got to do my part. I've got, I've, got to, I've got to do this, and I've got to do that, and, and I've got to add this, and, you know, and, and, and such and so, and, and whatever, and that is, that is a um, horrible, horrible, horrible ideology. And it's prevalent today. I mean, I, I think if you ask most Christians right off the bat to say, yeah, it's Jesus alone, but I'm telling you, if you just start pressing and asking questions, they'll start saying, well, you know, I had to do something to get to him, and I had to respond to him positively, and, and I have to walk the, the faith walk, and, you know, I had to get baptized, and I had to do these things. And so there's always this sort of adding on mentality or description given it's massively, I would say that is really, in essence, the American gospel. It's Jesus plus something, plus what I do, or 
plus how I obey or plus what have you. And uh, we're not justified by the law. We're not justified by what we do. We're not justified by any of our own actions. In fact, we don't even have faith. Faith is not indicative. It's not internal in a person. It's not there in the natural man. There is no faith. There is no ability to exercise faith. There is no ability to repent or anything without the supernatural aid of God. And so this idea that, well, it's faith plus these things, it's just, it's just heretical to say that. It's heretical to believe that. You're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone, the five solas, the great fruit of the Reformation, that was what they preached. And so there is no such thing as that, although it's prevalent, the idea is. And there are other groups, you know, just standard issue Christians sort of believe it's Jesus plus me, but there are some other distinct ones that, that definitely, I mean, you know, it's not subversive, it's not hidden, it's all out in the open. Five of them, have you ever heard of the Hebrew Roots Movement? Um, the teachings of the Hebrew Roots Movement are virtually identical to those of the Judaizers whom Paul rebuked in Galatians and who the church essentially rebuked in Acts 15. The primary focus of the Hebrew Roots Movement is to put followers of Christ back under the bondage of the Old Testament law. They actually teach that, you know, the only way that you can be a true Christian is to be first Jewish, in a sense. And so that's an ongoing heretical group that does kind of a line-by-line you know, doctrine and theology of the Judaizers. They haven't changed a bit. These are modern-day Judaizers. And then another group is Roman Catholicism. I know people in here are like, hey, I know Romans, Catholics that are saved and all that. Are there some? Of course there are. But for the most part, Roman Catholicism is, is insanely guilty of Judaism. It is. I mean, it's just of Judaizing. It's terrible. The Roman Catholic Church teaches a doctrine similar to that of the Judaizers, of the New Testament in this way. Its doctrine is a mixture of law and grace. At the Council of Trent, which was the final blow to the Catholic Church, I mean, this, this, when this happened, it was just, it had fully embraced heresy and gone, apostasy and gone completely off track. But at the Council of Trent in the 16th century, the Catholic Church explicitly denied the idea of salvation by faith alone completely rejected that doctrine. A person is not saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. That's what the Council of Trent, that was their hypothesis after all the centuries of wrestling with these issues and having all of these ecumenical meetings defending those kinds of doctrines and all that. In the 16th century, they went completely apostate, right down the tube. And today, hold these doctrines, teach these doctrines, And so, you know, when you think of the Catholic Church, don't think that automatically, well, they're just a form of Christianity, and and they're my brothers and sisters, and they just do things differently over there. They have the mass and all that. Guys, they they have a corrupted gospel. It's a gospel of faith plus your works. You need to know that. And so that will help you to better minister and evangelize to Catholics because they so desperately need that. And that was the big topic of the Reformation. It was justification by faith alone. The Catholic Church had their, you know, Trent meeting and kind of went in this direction, and the Reformers responded and said, ah, no, 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 no. It's by faith through grace in Christ alone. This is so imperative that we get this. You can't have a mixed gospel. It's either all Christ or it's nothing. 
It's not Christ plus what I do. It's not. That's a false gospel. You believe in the wrong gospel. And if you embrace that, I would, it won't pass the sniff test. That person doesn't have the Holy Spirit and hasn't been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They may act like a Christian in a sense and do certain things, and they might be ritualistic, but they're not a believer because the Spirit affirms the truth of God. And if the Spirit is there, the Spirit affirms that Christ alone is your Savior and faith alone is the, is the deal that does it. You must understand this. It's massive. Um, so they teach that. They teach, you know, in, in the 16th century, they said, no way, it's not faith alone. It can't be. It's got to be what we do too. Catholics have always held that certain sacraments are necessary for salvation. The issues for first century Judaizers were circumcision and Sabbath keeping. The issues for modern day Catholics are baptism and confession and a whole other list. In other words, Judaizers said you have to be circumcised and follow some of the Mosaic law to be saved. Catholics say you have to be baptized in the Catholic Church. You have to go to confessional all the time and you know, confess your sins to another guy and do these other rituals. You have to be a part of the Catholic. It's the only way that you can be saved. So obviously it's more than faith, it's you got to do what we tell you to do. Um, of course, the works, con- you know, works considered necessary may have changed, but both Judaizers and Catholics attempt to merit God's grace through the performance of ritualistic arts. That's something that's important to write down. 1 Timothy 4.3 says that in latter times, false teachers will, and listen to this parallel, 1 Tim 4.3 uh, in latter times, false teachers will forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. Now, this sounds suspiciously close to some of the teachings of Roman Catholicism, which requires priests to be celibate. Don't marry. Priests are forbidden to marry and also proclaims that some foods are to be off limits, in particular during Lent, right? Right? And so you have this passage back in Timothy where there's this prophetic word given from Paul to Timothy saying, hey, in the future, there's going to be groups in the church that rise up and say, you know what, you, um, you can't do this and you can't do that, you can't marry and you have to abstain from certain foods. And wouldn't you know it, the Catholic church has managed to fulfill that prophecy. And that should be a red flag to us. I mean, that's just, that is the fulfillment of that prophecy, and it's been fulfilled by other groups too. It's not just Roman Catholics. Mm, Judaizers upheld the Mosaic laws necessary for salvation. Man, in order to be truly saved, truly right with God, you got to do these things. Catholics uphold man-made tradition as necessary. Both view Christ's death as being insufficient without the active and continued cooperation of the one being saved. That's Catholicism, guys. And that doesn't mean that you haven't met genuine believers who belong to the Catholic Church. It doesn't mean that, you know, Catholics are less than us. They're just sinners just like us. It doesn't mean we mistreat them, that we're harsh towards them. Um, But we shouldn't err on some default mode of we just openly embrace them because they have been fed, Catholic people have been fed a false gospel for a long time, even before the Council of Trent. That's a very, very dangerous thing. Church of Christ emphasizes baptism as necessary for salvation. Like, you know, you believe, yes, but you must also be baptized. And there's no denying that baptism is very important. I can kind of understand why they come up with this error 
um, baptism and, you know, exercising faith and baptism were together in the book of Acts. I mean, they were inseparable, you know, this idea today that, well, I got saved in 1985 and in 2014 I got baptized. What? I mean, that's just, that's just unheard. You'd never see that in the book of Acts. When people made a profession of faith, they immediately were baptized. And so you can kind of see the seriousness of, of baptism in terms of belief, but it's still a critical error to say and teach that you must be baptized in order to be truly saved. And the church of Christ today, I mean, they'll hammer you for having it. If they saw this stage right here, they would think we're all going to hell because there's musical instruments up here. You know, you, you can't even have any of that stuff. That's another error they make. But the one in which where they say you have to be baptized to be saved, I mean, that just takes it to a whole other level. That, again, is Jesus plus something. That is gospel plus something. We know that baptism is not required for salvation. In fact, there's many scriptures that declare salvation to be received by faith with no mention of baptism whatsoever. So if baptism is necessary, then all of those passages that talk about salvation where baptism isn't mentioned, then those must be a contradiction to scripture, right? I mean, that's the logic of it. And so you don't have to be baptized to be saved, but I tell you what, it is very, very important for one to be baptized, I think. It's obedience to Christ, and if you're a believer, that should be your heart cry. So why would you not make a public profession of your faith, and why would you wait 20 years to do it? I don't know. Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day, now keep in mind, these are all under the Judaizer category. Seventh-day Adventists uphold a false doctrine called Sabbatarianism. It's the view that Old Testament Sabbath commandment has to be observed by the church today. You have to do worship on Saturday. If you don't do worship on Saturday, that's the Jewish calendar day for Sabbath. If you don't do it on Saturday, then you're not right with God. You're not obeying the Scripture, and you couldn't possibly be a true believer. It's terrible. I mean, this is something that they teach. This is something that they uphold. Um, Sabbatarianism refers to an extreme form of the belief in which membership in the true church or even salvation is conditional upon keeping the Sabbath law. You know, the belief is often accompanied by observance of Jewish dietary laws and other Old Testament feasts and these things. And so how do we respond to Seventh-day Adventists? Are they our brothers? Well, there certainly could be some in that movement that are, but the thing that is most important to a Seventh-day Adventist is the Sabbath, not Jesus. I mean, that's, there's your sniff test. Any denomination or anything that's out there, if Jesus isn't central and the focus and they're focusing on lesser things, then we've got a huge problem. That's one way that I test these things out there. It's like, okay, where's, this is the movement that you belong to. Where's Jesus in that? Well, he's everything. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. We're saved by faith in him alone, by grace alone. Okay, that sounds right. So seventh days are off in terms of the, their Sabbatarian. Mormonism, now this one's pretty obvious to us. We, we're all pretty familiar with that. Here are three quotes from leading Mormon scholars, Okay. These are like uh, theological statements based on the Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Prize, whatever it is that they're studying. A, good works are necessary for salvation. Just straight up. Let's just not dance around the subject. Let's not, you know, play footsie with it. Let's just state the reality of this gospel that we believe. Good works are necessary for salvation. That's James Talmadge, leading scholar. 
Secondly, one of the most fallacious doctrines originated by Satan and propounded by man is that man is saved alone by the grace of God, that belief in Jesus Christ alone is all that is needed for salvation. That's Spencer W. Kimball. At least they're straightforward. In some of these groups, there's a little more craftiness. Um, you know, it's, 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 um, it's a little more... Uh, um, I don't know what the word for it is, but, you know, it's maybe more subversive. You know, it's there, and it's what they believe, and it's what they affirm, but they don't really talk about it openly, and so they want to deceive as many people and later on throw you at the old bait and switch. But I tell you what, the Mormons are right out in front with it. They're honest. C, this is an interesting one. There is no salvation without accepting Joseph Smith as a prophet of God, Bruce McConkie. That sounds like Islam. If you don't accept Muhammad, then you can't possibly be saved. And so Mormonism is a strange mix of faith in Jesus and your own works, and you better honor and believe in Joseph Smith. And of course, Joseph Smith is the one who wrote the Book of Mormon. He was a false teacher. He was, I don't know if we'd even call him a heretic, apostate, I don't know. But for the most part, he managed to include in his own writings, you got to accept me. Right? I mean, I, I can just tell you human nature, and I know me, if I was uh, so inspired to write something and then, you know, dare to call it Scripture, I'd probably have a whole lot of promptings in there to bow and glorify me. I'd be like Nebuchadnezzar. That's human nature. And so that, that's just, that's Mormonism. Now listen to this one. This comes directly from the Book of Mormon. And, and this is where it gets shifty. It says, we know that it is by grace that we are saved after doing all we can do. So grace comes in after we've exhausted ourselves and our efforts to obey the law and live a righteous life and do these sorts of things. That's from 2 Nephi 25 to 23. I don't even know how you pronounce it. Nephi, their prophet. Just straight, plain, and simple, you know? Yeah, we're saved by grace. After you've done all that you can do, then that grace kicks in. It's like that nitrous oxide. It's like that turbo. Thank God for that turbo, because I'm kind of tired, and I'm going to have to take this week off and rest in grace. Next week, I'll fire it back up and drive around town. I mean, this, this, is, this is what they teach. This is what they're teaching their people week in and week out. Now, each of these so-called forms of Christianity, and I think they're pseudo, claim that faith in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ is not enough to save the person. You have to have faith plus the Mosaic law, or faith plus certain rituals, or faith plus baptism, or faith plus Sabbath observance, or faith plus good works, or faith plus Joseph Smith. And that's what they teach, guys. These groups are modern-day Judaizers. And I would say that it's much broader than that. A lot of Christians in this nation are Judaizers in that they do believe it's Jesus plus some of the things that I do. And maybe it's not these exact things, but it's some things. Scriptures that refute Judaizing, Acts 15, obviously, Romans 3, 24 to 28, Romans 4, 1 through 16, Galatians 3, all of those passages, I don't have time to go through all of them, they refute this idea Two, Gnosticism, first, first through third centuries. Gnosticism uh, may have been the most dangerous heresy that threatened the early church during the first three centuries. Um, it was influenced by philosophers like Plato, 
Gnosticism is based on several false premises. First, Gnostics assert that matter is inherently evil and spirit alone is good. As a result, they believe that anything done in the physical body, even the most wretched sin, has no meaning because real life exists in the spirit realm only. So Gnostics feel that they have license to do the most atrocity, you know, atrocious things in the body because it's irrelevant, because the spirit is what matters. I guess as long as I, I'm sinning outwardly with my body, it's okay as long as I'm believing inwardly. That's their crazy, twisted way of thinking. Second, Gnostics claim to possess a higher truth or elevated knowledge and that they were the only group to have it. Okay, if you want to have this higher knowledge, you've got to become Gnostic. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. Uh, the higher truth is acquired on some, you know, this higher truth that they speak of, this higher knowledge is acquired on some mystical higher plane of existence, not from the Scripture, not from the Word of God. It's outside of the Word of God. Gnostics saw themselves as a privileged class elevated above everyone else by their deeper knowledge of God. Uh, they used a variety of earthly heretical writings known as the Gnostic Gospels, a collection of forgeries claiming to be the lost books of the Bible. We finally found them. Here they are, the lost books of the Bible. I knew it just wasn't complete. Anyone who says that does not have the Spirit. Many of the early church fathers, fortunately, praise be to God, were, you know, aware of this stuff, and they were unanimous in recognizing these Gnostic scrolls as fraudulent uh, forgeries that espouse false doctrines about Jesus Christ, salvation, God, and every other you know, critical, crucial Christian truth. Gnosticism taught that Jesus' physical body was not real, but only seemed to be physical, like it was an emanation, and that his spirit descended upon him at his baptism, and then it left him just before the crucifixion. Obviously, such views destroy, destroy not only the true humanity of Christ, but also the atonement. Gnosticism taught that salvation is gained through the acquisition of divine knowledge, which frees one from the illusions of darkness. That's how one is saved. Doesn't have anything to do with the blood of Jesus. Doesn't have anything to do with faith. It has to do with a higher knowledge. And the more you know about the stuff they teach, the more liberated you become from darkness or what have you. Um, crazy, crazy weird system of belief. Gnosticism made a comeback, though, in the latter and the later half of the 20th century with the 1945 Egyptian discovery of the Nag Hammadi Library, a collection of Gnostic writings. Uh, one of the most influential books in modern, uh, on modern Gnosticism or in modern Gnosticism has been Elaine uh, Pagel's The Gnostic Gospels. It's an analysis of the Nag Hammadi documents, and you would think that I would never buy that and read that. Well, countless people who claim Christ do, and I don't know why. I mean, they just buy this stuff and read it, and that's, you know, look, this is, this is we've got to add this to the Scripture. We've got to add this to the truth. Modern Gnosticism is commonly found in syncretistic groups like the New Age movement, which teach that truth can be found by combining the beliefs and practices of numerous religions. I think that's the guise that Gnosticism is, is in there in this day and age. You've heard this universal New Agey idea and concept that truth is found in all religions and all religions point to, ultimately point to God. That's basically a form of Gnosticism. And there's a lot of people that that are preaching that today, I think probably, well, Eckhart Tolle, if you've ever heard of him, Deepak Chopra, John Edwards, he's the guy that talks to your, you know, Aunt Susan who died a few years ago on TV. Um, Oprah Winfrey is, is hugely Gnostic. 
It doesn't matter. I mean, she, yeah, she claims Jesus at times, but she's a Gnostic. She is a modern-day Gnostic. And no wonder so many people are watching her program, especially ladies, because they, um, she seems to be uttering things that people want to hear. She's tickling ears, and she comes across as a very spiritual person, and she's very open to all the different religions and faiths, and she's non-condemning and won't speak truth very plainly and all that. I mean, she acknowledges Jesus and Buddha and, and all the stuff out there, and of course, that's what Americans want. They want a hodgepodge mix you know, of all this stuff. Passages that refute Gnosticism, there are a zillion of them. Gen, you know, Genesis 1-4, Genesis uh, chapter 10, chapter 18, 21, 25, 27, John 8, 32, John 10, 30, John 14, 6, Colossians 1, 16 through 17, 2 Tim 3, 16 to 17, 1 John 1, 1. Brrr, you just keep going. Gnosticism, is, no, the Bible just hammers it. Three, doses, uh, docetism. First through fourth centuries, docetism is taken from the Greek word doikin, which means to seem. Uh, the docetics believed that Christ's suffering was imaginary, that it only seemed like he suffered. There's those Gnostic undertones there. They taught that the divine God cannot suffer, and thus, since Christ is divine, his suffering was an illusion to teach humans a valuable lesson about the illusion of matter. So there, again, are all about the Spirit and opposed to all matter. They think matter is evil, but the Spirit is pure. And so that's Gnostic teaching. Docetism evolved um, in its early stages. It denied Christ's suffering. Obviously, that's where it started. But as it developed later over the years, it evolved into a full-blown denial of his humanity. Kind of started with, now that really wasn't him on the cross. It seemed like him. And then it kind of progressed and became a flat-out denial of, of, his, of him being a man, of the incarnation. Uh, the Gnostics and the, uh, the Docetics kind of came around a little bit before the Gnostics. And so the Gnostics took notice of the Docetics and adopted many of their doctrines and their ideology. In 451, a church council was formed at Chalcedon in Bithynia of Asia Minor. The council convened and issued the Chalcedonian definition, which repudiated docetism and Gnosticism. So basically what that means is the church came together, evaluated what was going to, assembled all the bishops and everyone that was lead, you know, in a leadership position, many of the priests, many of the public, and they assessed the Gnosticism and docetism, and they, you know, they basically defined what the Christian faith is as a response to those heresies. Um, they came up with what's called the Chalcedonian definition. Um, it declared that Jesus Christ has two natures, that he is fully God and fully man. Um, we would call that the uh, hypostatic union. Uh, it's a mystery. It's a supernatural thing. We receive it by faith. The heresy continues among modern groups that deny the reality of suffering, like the New Age movement and Christian science. Um, just so you know, there's nothing Christian about Christian science. We tend to think because it has Christian in the name that it obviously is Christian uh, they reject, they're basically modern-day Gnostics or Docetists, or Docetics, we would say. Scriptures that refute Docetism, um, John 1, 1 to 3, and 1, 14, uh, Philippians 2, 6 to 8, and there's a whole bunch of other passages that do that very well. The Bible speaks to all of these things. It's amazing. Uh, four, Originism, third century. 
Origenism is named after the early church father, Origen. Uh, the career of Origen is one of the most or more unusual in church history. Uh, this guy was a weird character. I studied, studied him a few years ago in a college course, and uh, it was, he was just bizarre. Um, he dedicated himself, uh, in, on one hand, to defending attacks on Christianity from paganism and Judaism and Christian heresies. I mean, this guy was like the apologist of his time for a while. He wrote an amazing po- apologetic called Contra Celsus, where he literally decimated the higher critics of his day. I mean, he just annihilated them and used biblical arguments to do it, just trashed them. But despite his defense of orthodoxy earlier in his career, he developed several heretical doctrines. Um, His most notable ones were, A, the pre-existence of human souls, the belief that each individual human soul existed before mortal conception and at some point before birth enters its place into the body, So it's like our souls were all out there floating around in space, and then they were assigned to our fleshly body at some point. That's what he began to teach. Okay, all right, origin, way to go. B, the subordination of the Son to the Father. Subordinationism is the belief that the Son and the Holy Spirit are subordinate to God the Father in nature and being. Okay, we're not talking about submission here. We're not talking about Jesus submitting to his Father's will as a man. That's different than subordination. What subordinationism subordinationism teaches is that Christ and the Holy Spirit are less than the Father. They're less than them. They're not coexistent and co-equal and co-eternal. So that's what it teaches. Um, They are obviously less. The Father is like the main guy, and then Jesus and the Holy Spirit are under them. It's like a little ladder. Jesus is second down on a couple of rungs, and then you have the Holy Spirit down below. He basically developed this false doctrine, which is really tragic. C, universalism. That was his idea. Well, it was the devil's idea way back, but he picked it up and ran crazy with it. The belief that all human beings and fallen angels will ultimately be restored to right relationship with God in heaven and in the new Jerusalem. Um, basically, faith and repentance and Jesus Christ and these sorts of things really don't matter for the individual because at the end of all things, God's just going to reconcile the whole world and everything to him. That was an idea that he came up with. After defending the true gospel for decades, he, this is where he landed. This is where he ended up. Just goes to show that even, even the guys who are seemingly really good for the kingdom and uh, brilliant and theologically sound and doctrinally sound can get off track and go down a terrible, terrible path. In 553, the Second Council of Constantinople convened and repudiated the teachings of Origen and many others. The council produced 11 anathemas, which is basically a curse. This is number 11. If anyone does not anathematize, that's curse, Arius... Uh, Eunomius, Macedonius, Apollinaris, Nestorius, Eutychus, and Origen, Oregon, actually it's Oregon or Origen, together with their impious godless writings and all the other heretics already condemned and anathema, anathematized by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church and by the four holy synods and all those who have held and hold or who in their godlessness persist in holding to the end the same opinion as those heretics just mentioned, let him be anathema. So at this council, they said, okay, not only are these things false, but anyone who follows their teachings and believes them is cursed. That's what they, that was their finding. 
There are groups today that adhere to Origen's teachings, in particular Mormons and liberal Christians. Mormons believe in the pre-existence of human souls and subordinationism. They very obviously make Christ less than God the Father. And I think the Holy Spirit to Mormons is probably like a force, you know, he's not a person. Um, Liberal Christians like Rob Bell, have you seen this cat around? Uh, At one time, his material was uh, very popular amongst evangelicals. He had these NUMA videos, and some of them were... Um, yeah, Liz is like, I remember watching those, because I do too. I almost bought the dang collection. Um, yeah, yeah I did. Do you want to have a torch-burning party after church? Yeah. Um, you know, and isn't that typical of heretics, of false teachers, though, that they come in with enough truth to get you hooked, and then they begin to very slowly blend in their heresy and blend in apostasy, and then they mislead people this way. But Rob Bell was one of those guys, I tell you. I was one of the first people that I know of to respond negatively to his teachings. I just kept hearing things in his stuff that just wasn't, I could tell it wasn't orthodox. And so when I started to speak up about that at my old pastorate, I had others telling me, you're an idiot. This guy's sound. Well, if you know anything about him, he, man, he went way off. I mean, he just, oh, he's, instead of playing footsie and being subversive, he just openly came out and spoke what he's always believed, and that was just heresy. And he let the cat out of the bag, we would say. He totally adheres to Origen's teachings. He is a universalist and, and, and everything else. Um, scriptures that refute Origenism, Hebrews 9.27, John 10.30, Matthew 7.13-23, and 8.11-12. They just put the hammer on Origenism. Five, Sabellianism, 2nd through 3rd century. Sabellianism. Have you ever heard of that one? Have you heard of any of these things? Like, if you don't intentionally look into it, you don't ever hear about these. You don't even know what the church has been through. I mean, the church has a long history of dealing with this stuff. We tend to think in our day and age, in our little, you know, narrow tunnel vision, and, oh, this is great, and what's happening? Man, the church has been through a literal hell. I mean, there have been heresies and false teachers all along attacking the church in orthodoxy and wanting to mislead. Sabellianism is just another example of the second through third century In 190 A.D., Theodotus of Byzantium developed what became known as monarchianism. Monarchianism, okay? Monarchianism, and these words are terrible, right? I was all weak. I was... Monarchianism began to get traction, though. Okay, it really didn't take off during his time. But it began to get traction in the 3rd century when a priest named Sibelius adopted, modified, and began to teach and promote it. Sibelius taught that God was single and indivisible, with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being three modes or manifestations of one divine person. It is the idea that God is one eternal being, and at certain points in human history, He chose to reveal Himself as the Father in creation, as the Son in redemption, and as the Holy Spirit in regeneration and sanctification. Sibelianism basically denies the doctrine of Trinity. It's a flat-out rejection of the doctrine of Trinity, which says that God is and always has been one in three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The teachings of Sibelius were uh, most vigorously opposed by Tertullian in North Africa and Hippolytus, or Hippo, yeah, Hippolytus in Rome. Um, in 220 A.D., uh, Sibelius was 
excommunicated as a heretic by Pope Callistus I. And in 262 AD, Sabellianism was officially condemned as a heresy by Dionysus, Bishop of Rome. Uh, There is another form of Sabellianism called, and it's the one that we would be familiar with today, it's called modalism. Have you ever heard of modalism? Anyone ever heard of that, modalism? Yeah. Modalism is nothing more than repackaged Sabellianism. And and here's the thing, modalism is very popular today. It is. It's very, very popular today. It's very prevalent. Groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and Unitarians are modalistic. And Oneness Pentecostals, that would be the largest group of modalists in our culture or in our country or in the world. Are you familiar with the pastor, preacher, extraordinary communicator T.D. Jakes? You know this guy, you know, ha, going to preach, ha. You know, have you ever watched any of his sermons? There's a lot of ha in there, you know. Let me just tell you, the guy is a phenomenal communicator. I mean, I love passionate preaching. Um, and he is, he is very, very talented at, at expressing thought and, and sentence and, and doing these things. He's a phenomenal orator, and I think that's why he has so many people snowed. He is a oneness Pentecostal and modalist. He belongs to that group. Uh, he, he is. I mean, in 2012, however, Jakes was part of the Elephant Room too. These were a couple of uh, video. Well, there were a couple of forums that were created with different pastors who talked about doctrine and ministry and these sorts of things. And I think I watched the first one. I never made it to the second one. I thought the first one was so dumb. I never made it to the second one. Um, but Jakes was actually invited to be a part of the Elephant Room too, and all these pastors and him were talking theology and Bible and all that. After the event, Jakes was slammed by a hailstorm of criticism for not being clear on the doctrine of the Trinity. I believe that subject was brought up at least lightly. And he, you know, what he does is he doesn't say yes to it or no to it. He says a whole lot of stuff, meaning to say no to it. And that's another thing we need to be aware of. And that's how the devil works. He might not openly and poignantly say no to this or yes to this, he'll, you know, he won't ever answer the question, much like politicians do today. What's your stance on this? Well, you know, I was over there at AMPM. I didn't ask you about what you got at, I didn't ask you about a big gulp. What's your stance on this? You've seen Joel Osteen on TV when he's asked about subjects, man, that that guy's the Fred Astaire, right, of debate. I mean, he just dance. he never answers the question. Huh? Well, that wasn't Fred Astaire. That was, I don't know what that was. Yeah. Yeah, I won't. I, I'm sorry. I, you know, I, I didn't realize there were older people in here that know who Fred Astaire is. Bruce is like, I want to dance next to him. Oh, man. I, now I've completely lost my train of thought. Oh. Okay. So, T.D. Jakes, right? So, he was hit by a hailstorm of criticism and then supposedly repented and said, I'm now a Trinitarian. If you believe in the Trinity, God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you're a Trinitarian. And so he's, he's you know, woohoo, all right, praise the Lord, right? And uh, well, let, let, let's not get too ahead of ourselves. I copied this statement from the doctrinal page of his website and Potter's, what is the name of his church? The Potter's Field or the Potter's something? Potter's Field, that'd be a terrible name for a church. 
if you know what that is, right? Yeah, that's where Judas hung himself. Our church, we're about, you know, we're about hangings. Yeah, okay. Um, that'd be terrible. Well, I copied this statement from his page on Friday. So not 2012, 2015, just a couple of days ago, right? All right. There is one God. We're off to a good start. Creator of all things. Getting better. Infinitely perfect. I like that. And eternal, existing in three manifestations. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's modalistic language. Again, there's one God, and He chose to manifest Himself. This is modalistic teaching. This is Sibelianism. This is monarchianism. He chose to reveal Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But He's actually this God that's out here. And these are three modes of revelation. Does his statement sound like he recanted? Did he repented? No, it doesn't at all. It, that's modalistic language. Now listen to our version at RHC. Uh-huh. Paul will be like, yes. We believe and teach that there is but one living and true God. I like that. It's good. An infinite all-knowing spirit, perfect in all his attributes, one in essence, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each equally deserving worship and obedience. That is Trinitarianism. That is the right view of the Trinity. That is the, the you know, opposite of modalism. And I'm not tooting a horn, but I am. That's Trinitarian language. That's truth. That's what the Scripture teaches over and over and over. It's doctrinally correct. But modalism, you must understand, isn't T.D. Jake's only problem. He also teaches the prosperity gospel. Okay, and that's as much a front to scriptural truth that modalism is. It's just, it's equal. It's terrible. The prosperity gospel is terrible. I'm going to try to lay siege to that one next week. Um, yeah, I'm going to put it on it. Again, he might be an energetic and talented communicator, but he's a heretic. He's a false teacher. He's misleading people. He doesn't adhere to. Christian orthodox, orthodoxy. He doesn't adhere to the truth. He doesn't adhere to the scripture. And so, you know, I would say, um, although he's gifted and talented and kind of fun to listen to at times, I just wouldn't give him the time of day. Him and any other like that, I just don't think it's wise. Scriptures that refute Sabellianism, modalism, monarchianism, John 3.16, uh, John 17.22-23, 1 John 5.7-14, the list goes on and on and on. Number six, Arianism. Arianism, fourth century. Arianism was a fourth century heresy named after Arius, a presbyter in Alexandria, Egypt, who taught that the Son of God was not co-eternal and co-substantial with His Father, but rather a created being with a definite origin in time. In Arius' words... There was a time when he, the son, was not. That's what he taught. While Arius developed a following among some Syrian prelates, an Alexandrian synod of some hundred bishops summoned by Bishop Alexander condemned him in 321. He was excommunicated and then fled to Palestine. There he entered into a friendship with Eusebius of Nicomedia, Arius, a proficient writer, produced many papers and letters defending his belief. Most of these writings were destroyed as being heretical. You know, Arianism is terrible because it just it rejects the deity of Christ. 
I mean, that's ultimately what it does. Now, the Roman Emperor Constantine, desiring the restoration of peace and unity to the church, publicly called upon Arius and Alexander to settle their dispute. However, the issue was such that no genuine compromise was possible. As the debate continued to rage between supporters of each man, the emperor finally decided to call a great council of all church bishops to resolve the dilemma. The first um, ecumenical council held at Nicaea in 325 was led by Athanasius. Now, that guy is a hero of the church. He was. He Actually, back then, he was just a deacon in the Alexandrian church, and so that's interesting, but he was kind of the go-to guy at this council. He was the guy that argued against Arius. He was the guy that defended the deity of Jesus Christ in these early days. He, I mean, there was others that defended it, but he was the champion. The council ended up condemning Arianism and produced the what? The Nicene Creed, right? Which became the church's official doctrinal statement for many, many centuries. It's still in use today. I'm going to read it for you in just a moment. Now, is Arianism around today? Is it still going? Yeah, totally. In fact, I'd say that it's probably... Yeah, I'd say it's probably... But not just them. I mean, there are, there are a whole lot of people that are not Jehovah's Witness who claim Christ and who also do not believe that Christ is God. They believe He's the Savior. They believe He was sent of God. They believe He was born of a virgin and all these other important doctrines. But they don't think that He was God, or they at least think that He was less than fully God. You know, maybe He was 50% God and 50% man instead of 100 and 100, something like that. So it is around today. I'd say every, you know, almost every, nearly every, pseudo-Christian group denies the full deity of Christ. As Harry said, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Unitarians, there's a bunch of them, a bunch of them. Jehovah's Witnesses uh, hold views closest to that of the ancient Arians. I would say if you were going to evaluate a group, that would be the group that is as close to Arius's teaching as you can be. Others take little bits and pieces of what he taught, but they would be right down the pike. It's the same stuff. Uh, in fact, their founder, what's his name, Charles Taze Russell, yes, Charles Taze Russell once claimed that Arius was his predecessor, the one that came before him. See, what happened was God raised up Arius to come out and preach the true gospel, and he did that centuries ago, and he died, and he sent me in his place. I'm kind of like the John the Baptist or something like that to come and continue his marvelous work. That's what Charles Taze Russell, the founder so you tell me which one's closest to that ancient heresy. That one is. He is the predecessor of Charles Taze Russell. Now listen to the similarities between them. Arianism says the Son was created out of nothing, hence He is different in essence from the Father. Okay, the Son was created out of nothing, right? Hence He is different in essence of the Father. So He was a created being and He's different than the Father. The Son is a finite being. Basically, he's a man. He's not eternal. Uh, the Son was created before everything else, and through him the universe was created and is administered. And so that's Arian teaching, ancient Arian teaching. Jehovah's Witnesses say Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, the only Son produced, created by Jehovah alone. Uh, the Son is the first created of all creation. 
By means of him, that's Jesus, all other things in heaven and on earth were created. And then lastly, he is the second greatest personage in the universe. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. That's what they proclaim. That's what they teach. How many of you guys have had Jehovah's Witnesses come into your neighborhood and and how many of you have tried to make it look like you're not home? What an opportunity that we would have for evangelism. I have to admit I've done that. I actually left my lawnmower running out on the yard and went into the house one time. (laughs) You know? Wait till they pass. Like they didn't notice the running lawnmower. You know, now, I'll tell you what, one time I got into a pretty fierce debate with one of them, and I think they, like, you know, red-marked or black-labeled my house. They wouldn't come to me anymore. And I used to actually, later, I started mowing my lawn with my Bible in my back pocket. I mean, that's just, you know, you never know when a rock may fling up, and I wanted the Word to protect me. No, I didn't do that. I thought, if I'm out there on Saturday and they're out there, maybe I'll have an opportunity to talk to them, and I'll bring out my Bible and, and refute what they believe. They, they also reject hell. I mean, they just, they, they, man, they're off. So do they sound like Arians? Yeah, they are the same as Arians. Scriptures that refute Arianism, again, how would we respond to them? Grace, truth, scripture, evangelism. That's what we do. We don't receive them as brothers. We proclaim the true gospel to them and, and trust that God is at work and leave it in God's hands. Uh, scriptures that refute Arianism, John 1, 1 to 1, uh, John 1, 1 through 14, we had that read earlier, John 10, 30, Acts 5, 3 to 4, Titus 2, 13, 1 John 5, 7, and a whole bunch more. Well, that concludes our time and our survey for this morning. I would say make it a point to be here next week, and I'll try to tackle six more, and um, I don't know. I think I'm a little more excited about the next six than the first six. Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, Arminianism, Pentecostalism. And you're saying, Pentecostalism? There's Pentecostals who are believers? Yeah, there are. But for the most part, wait till you hear about its origin, where it came from, and what its basic tenets are. But I'm going to talk about those things next week, so I'd make it a point to come back. I'll close our time with the reading of that great ancient document that you know, the early Christians used to repudiate Arius and his followers, the Nicene Creed. A lot of churches use this document today. It's a fantastic doctrinal statement. I actually pulled this off of uh, the Spurgeon website. There's an old version of it and a newer version. But just listen. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. 
We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, He is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic that's universal and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.